thinking, well, I'm glad the time change is coming. So it's a good time for it to happen. Anytime the government's going to give me an extra hour of sleep, I'll definitely take it. So um, make a note of that, but it's not that big a deal. You'll just be at first service instead of second service. And hopefully some of you and will learn to come to church on time to get a good seat, and that's a good thing too. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles now to the book of Philippians. As we're studying through Philippians, this morning we're looking at a passage that begins with verse 19 and goes down through verse 26. And it's an important passage because Paul here deals in a great to a great degree with life and death. What his life was all about and how he looked at death as it was impending. Death is something that we try not to think about too much and yet we think about it all the time. They say that the average person thinks about death at least once every hour of your waking hours. I don't know if you think about it that much. Some days you might think about it a lot more than that. I'm talking about your own death, not someone else's. <laughs> I, looked, I, I googled fear of death, and it had 1,487,000-some-odd hits, different sites that deal specifically with the fear of death. There are some people, it seems, though, some people aren't afraid to die. In fact, they want to die. They... People take their own lives all the time. But those people who want to die, in general, it's because they hate life. In general, people who are afraid of dying, it's because they like life, and they're not sure about what's going to happen after life. And the sad thing is, a fear of death can rob life of its joy, and, a, and an attraction toward death can can do the same sort of thing ultimately to devalue and to discount all that's good about life. The only way to live your life, though, is to discover the secret to how can I love life and also love death, have a good attitude toward death. And Paul here does just that. He gives his perspective in a way that I think is very instructive and helpful to us. And here in this passage, the center of the passage really is in verse 21, where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, you might ask yourself the question, if you were going to fill in the blanks and someone said, For me, to live is blank, what would fill in that blank? What does living mean to you? What is life all about? What's at the center, the core, the hub of life? And Paul had come to the point where that was an easy question. Because for him, life was about Jesus. At the very center, at the very core. Now, it hadn't always been that way with Paul. Earlier in his life, for him, if he had said the same thing, he would have had to say, for me to live is the law is being good, is being righteous. Paul set all of his sights and all of his energy on following the rules of the law to become, by all outward accounts, blameless. And he said he had achieved that. But there was something lacking, something missing in a life that's set on legalism. For the most part, a life set on legalism will cause you to end up frustrated because you can't live up to it. But even if you do, there's something missing. But certainly when Paul was a young person and maturing and utilizing all of his education and all of his considerable gifts, Christ was anything but the center of life for him. If anything, Christ was an obsession with him, how he could defeat this early movement of Christianity. And so Paul spent his waking hours trying to figure out how to crush the influence of Jesus Christ in the world. He was involved in persecute, persecuting Christians so much so that one day he was on his way to Damascus, the capital of Syria, heading up through northern Israel, 
And the drive of his life was focused before him, I want to go kill Christians. I want to go imprison and punish Christians. I have to snuff out Christianity. And that was his life at that time. But something radically changed when a light came forth from heaven and and he met Jesus Christ personally. And as Jesus addressed him and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And you see in just a moment, This man, Saul, who was so indoctrinated against Jesus, now was calling him Lord. Now was seeing him in a completely different light. And his life changed radically at that point. And now, for him, to live was Christ. It was all about Jesus. He went from hating him to loving him in just a moment's time based on an encounter with him. So, What's life to you? Is it like Paul trying, was when he was younger, just trying to be good? Boy, that'll wear you out, I'll tell you. Is it for you, is life trying to please certain people? Again, frustrating. Or maybe for you, you would say, for me to live is money. I want to get as much of it as I can. Or you might not admit to saying money is the center of my life, but instead you might say, for me to live is security. Just another way of saying money, but it doesn't sound so gauche. Or for me to live is my family. Or for me to live is baseball. How excited are people now with two teams in the World Series that no one really cares about? It's like (laughs) the only interest at all is The good thing is, with Detroit in it, whether they win or lose, we get to watch them burn their own town down again. (laughs) But there are some people that to live is just taking risks, living wild, taking chances, being extreme. There are some people for whom to live is just fighting, or to live is just to annoy people. There are some people that's the drive of their life. I knew a man years ago who said the motto of his life was, I give ulcers, I don't get them. (laughs) And he lived by his motto, for sure. So what is living? How would you define it? What's at the center? I would propose to you that anything that you put in the place of Jesus Christ at the center of your life is going to leave you frustrated and discouraged. You won't enjoy life, and death will be a horrible threat to you as well. As anything that is inferior to Christ as the hub of your life doesn't allow you really to enjoy all of those other things. Now, he doesn't say, all I care about is Christ, but Christ is at the center. Because if Christ is at the center, your relationships with your family will be better. Your enjoyment of your job will be better. You'll do a better job of your job. Everything that you appreciate about life, you will appreciate more as long as Jesus is in the right place. But any of those things that are hubs on the wheel, if you put them as the hub, any of those that are spokes on the wheel, rather, if you put them at the hub, they'll let you down and they will hurt you. But living our lives with Jesus Christ at the center so that everything else in my life that matters matters as I get the perspective of Jesus. Then my life can become balanced. And I can begin to enjoy everything else about life. And the glorious thing is, death is no threat. I don't have to fear death. I don't have to live my life as some people have said we spend every minute of life trying not to think about death. But God can free us up because Christ is the one who defeated death. He died and came back and goes, "Eh, it's no big deal. Believe in me, you'll never die, really. It only looks like death. We have that opportunity if he is at the center. Now, as we look through this passage, I want to call your attention to how much Paul seemed to enjoy life and appreciate life and why, and then we'll go through it again and see what he liked about death. After we finish going through it twice, we can have the perspective that only comes from Christ being at the center. And I believe as a result, we can truly enjoy life and we can relish the idea of death 
We don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Living life, trying to enjoy it, but scared to death. Or turning ourselves, our back on life, and going, this isn't worth it, I just want to die. Paul had this amazing balance where he loved life and loved death. Beginning with verse 19 here in Philippians chapter 1. Paul talking about his trials and difficulties. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. The word there is the same word that we use for salvation, so some of the translations translate it salvation. It's not talking about him becoming a Christian. But what he's saying is, I know things are going to work out. In other words, what is happening to me is happening because God is protecting me. God is removing things that may end up getting in my way. Much as what happened with the three guys who were thrown in the fiery furnace in the days of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were bound hand and foot and thrown into the fiery furnace. The fire didn't burn a hair on their head, but they were in there walking around. All the fire burned was the ropes. And we have the knowledge that life is all about God burning our ropes, God loosening our chains, God setting us free. And he is delivering us in everything that he does in our lives. There are so many things that we grieve their loss. And in reality, if we only had this perspective, we would realize I am much better off. I think of people and you run into them all the time. And they're... They've been completely burned in a relationship. They, a, a person has been horrible and mistreating them and been unfaithful or whatever, and then ultimately they dump them. And some people spend the rest of their lives grieving that loss. Hey, you know what? If they were like that, you should be glad they're gone. You should be thankful. It's kind of like the old joke that I heard Chuck Jr. tell one time. He claimed his father gave him one great piece of advice. He said, his dad told him, whatever you do, find the ugliest girl you can find and marry her. And he goes, well, dad, why would I do that? He said, well, first of all, if you marry an ugly woman, what are the chances that she's ever going to leave you? And if she does, so what? (laughs) (laughs) And so many times we, we stress over things that we're losing when we realize, you know, you're being delivered. And so Paul looked at his life and he goes, you know what? God's going to deliver me. God is the one who will rescue me. I know Jesus Christ is at the center of my life. And so he'll bail me out. He'll take care of me. I know it. But he goes on to say, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Another reason why Paul loved life is because he was able to connect in a really personal way with these people who were praying for him. And and life became an adventure of how God is going to answer our prayers and how that will bind us together as God responds when we ask. And as we encourage each other, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives through the exercise of the gifts of the Spirit, through the the leading of the Holy Spirit as he guides us, through the fruit of the Spirit as it changes us into something. And Paul's going, man, I love being with you people. I love praying together and seeing God answer your prayers. I love the Holy Spirit coming in and meeting our needs. Paul was loving life because of the connection that he had with people like the Philippians. You know, sometimes we pray really just minor prayers or really flimsy prayers or just really general prayers, and we don't get the joy sometimes of actually knowing that God answers prayer, but the fact is he does. And there are few things in life more exciting than getting a report that something that you prayed deeply about, that you cared desperately about, God came through and answered that prayer. And it's one of the most glorious things in life. It's one of the things that I live waiting to hear some of those things. If every time I heard of someone's problem and I prayed and I knew that nothing was going to happen, it get really depressing. 
But the truth is we get these experiences. I had, there's a, a woman that I know who's just been going through a really rough time. One thing after another, it was piling up and, and we email back and forth and I see sometimes the desperation and I've prayed so hard for God to work. And the last couple of days I was away speaking down in San Diego and then up in the mountains. I got back last night, I wanted to actually come by and see the new church and how much got done at the work day, and then I th- well, I'll check my emails. And I got an email from her, and it was this incredible knocking down the dominoes email where every major thing that we had been praying about, boom, 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 God had answered. And this overwhelming burden that was there, it was now like, oh, man, this was worth all of the pain and all of the wondering and all of the questioning. Because, God, you came through so magnificently. And Paul saw life, even need, as an opportunity to see God work, as an opportunity to pray together and agree together and to to see God come through. And so one of the reasons he loved life is because of that body life. As we, through the Holy Spirit, relate to each other, minister to each other, pray for each other, and he goes, I love seeing how God delivers Now, as we continue to read in verse 20, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Several things I see in this. First of all, he's talking about his earnest expectation and hope. Another reason for loving life is because since we know God and He is at the center of our life, we trust Him. No matter what is going on right now, we can have this earnest expectation and hope. We talked about it a few weeks ago as we were seeing the Scripture where He said, the one who began a good work in you is going to complete it. And that is based on relationship and our knowledge of who God is. Our perspective in life is completely influenced by what we believe about God. Because if we're in a difficult time and life is tough, but we say, you know what? I know God. I know how he is. I can trust in him. I can count on him. And I know he is going to come through. I can't wait to see what he is going to do. I I just know it. He will come through. And He will come through for me, and he will come through in me. God is going to work. One of the reasons why we get frustrated with life and why we stop enjoying life is sometimes when we look in the mirror, we see something that isn't the way we want it to be. And then when we look around us, we're even more discouraged. I think I'm bad until I look at other people, and I go, they're worse than I am. Great. And you can just begin to lose hope. Unless you have a reason to hope, unless you have a reason to expect that God isn't finished and that he will continue to work. And so Paul would say, you know, I love life. I'm enjoying life because I know God and I expect great things from God. I am optimistic. I know how he comes through. He's done it in the past and I know the future is going to be glorious. And so my earnest expectation and hope. But then he goes on to say, a part of his optimism and his hope was that he would never be ashamed, but with boldness, he would preach Christ and Christ would be magnified in his body. See, Paul could easily look at himself and feel like, I don't know. Paul, as an old man, said, I consider myself to be the chief of sinners. Later in Philippians, he's going to say, believe me, I haven't arrived. Now, we could go, if Paul hadn't arrived by that point, what hope is there for me? But Paul had a great hope because this hope and this expectation he had that he talks about here is that, you know what? I've been ashamed in the past. I've been embarrassed in the past. I've failed in the past. But I know that God is working in my life in such a way, and since he isn't finished with me, the day is going to come when I stand strong. And when he is magnified in me, that day for us 
many of us may not quite be today, but the, but the future is bright because of the God that we serve. When we talk about magnifying God, a lot of times we think of magnifying as making something bigger than it is. But when you use a magnifying glass, you're not making anything bigger. What you do with a magnifying glass is you get to look closer. You see a more detailed view. And what Paul is saying here is, the reason I'm glad I'm still here because I know God isn't finished with me and somehow God is going to use me in my body to magnify him, to let people see more of him. And that is something that's worth living for. How and through whom did you learn about Jesus Christ? Not just initially, but as you go on in your life. If you think about it, and there are people who have exemplified Jesus to you, then you realize what a blessing it is that God can use you in that way. That God, through your life, can allow people to look at you and see God. I, I think that's one of the most amazing things to me. It's miraculous. Anytime someone can look at you or look at me and say, now God is making more sense to me. I'm starting to get it. And I have people say this to me sometimes, and it just always amazes me. That, now, there are some people who will say, oh, I see Jesus in you so much, but they would say it to their cat, too. You know? it's just, <laughs> but sometimes you realize somebody, and they'll say it in such a way that you go, wow, somehow they really did see God in me. And I might have done it by accident. They may have missed the whole point, and yet God so distorted their vision that when they looked at me, they saw Jesus. Well, that's what life is all about, if to live is Christ. And though we are all flawed individuals, and though not one of us is a perfect representation of who Jesus Christ is, yet collectively, as we work together, as we walk with him, as we care about each other and minister to each other, what happens is if you look around enough, you begin to see Jesus. Because I bear a little resemblance to him, and you do too, and we're very different, and so people have to triangulate, and eventually they get this picture of Jesus. And Paul said, man, I'm excited that the longer I live, the more I get God to be glorified in my body and who I am while I live and if I die. God being magnified, that was something that really floated Paul's boat. That was something that he got excited about and looked forward to. As excited as I am at the fact that God uses me now, as flawed as I am, and then I think, you know what, I don't know how much longer I'm going to live, but let's just say I you know, have another 20 years or whatever to live. Imagine what God is going to do during that time. Imagine the opportunities that he will give me for people to see him in me. If I will just hang on to him and focus on him and allow him to grow me into who he wants me to be. That's something to look forward to. That's something to anticipate. Because I know me, but I know God. And my excitement is that he isn't finished with me, and he is on the, on the program of representing himself in me and allowing people to see things about him that maybe only I am in a position to allow people to see. If it's nothing more that people see me and go, man, God is really gracious to let a guy like you talk about him and represent him. I'll never forget the day. I, I think it was the first time I ever spoke at Calvary Costa Mesa when Chuck was away. And I felt like it went okay. I'd probably hate to hear it now. But, you know, this was 
27 years ago or something like that. And afterwards, I walked down, and people were lined up to talk to me. And there are certain people. I used to be really blessed when people would come up and say, boy, that was a great message. But then I would notice when other people spoke and gave really crummy messages, the same people went up and said they were great. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> put it into perspective. But there's this one little guy I'll never forget. He talked like one of those old computer speech synthesizers and just like, and he, he, he comes up and he goes, so, you're a pastor. And I said, uh, yeah. He goes, the Lord works in strange ways. <laughs> I go, oh, thanks. <laughs> but the truth is that was probably the most accurate and helpful critique I got of that sermon, really. And God can show his grace by when I'm a failure. Because if it draws attention to him, that's fine. If God wants to use me as an example of how bad you can be and still be used by God, okay. I'm working hard at that one. But no, seriously, I, I believe that he has a, I believe, all right. I know God, I know myself enough that I could really lose hope, but I know God enough that I know that I can look forward to what he's doing. And in my more lucid moments, I realize, though today I am not who I would like to be, by the grace of God, I'm not who I used to be. And, you know, and that's the hope that we all have. If he is at the center, we can go, okay, I have a perspective, I realize God's done some things in my life, and he isn't finished, and somehow he wants to use me to magnify him, and that is something worth living for. In fact, how can I even think about, I'm done with life, I want to end my life, I don't want to live anymore, when God promises that he will be magnified in my life? Do I really want to cut off what God wants to do in my life? How do you know if God has great plans for you? Are you breathing? If you're still alive, God isn't finished. He has great plans for you. And Paul relished that. He loved that. And, and again, now in verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ. <laughs> Jesus is everything. He is my life. Every day, fellowshipping with him, representing him, loving him. In verse 22, If I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul says, if I'm alive here on the earth, there's going to be fruit. There's going to be a result. I will do things and the result will be God will work. Do you believe that there is going to be fruit from your labor? If you stop believing that, then you can't enjoy life. Because if you feel like your life is meaningless, well, how do you relish it and enjoy it? How do you value it and esteem it? How do you even make plans for the future? But Paul said, as long as I live, there is going to be fruit. I understand that. And the same is true for you if Christ is the center of your life. If he isn't, yeah, you will be disappointed. Because if you set all of your focus on, you know, boating, sooner or later, that's going to let you down. If you put all of your focus on your family, sooner or later, through circumstances or whatever, that can be snatched away from you, and now your center is gone. But if Jesus Christ is at the center, then you know there's fruit. You know that everything that you do is going to have a reason and a purpose. Oh, and you may not be able to do everything that you want to do. Think about Paul. He's talking about a fruitful life. We would look on the outside and say, man, his life was way more fruitful before he got imprisoned in Rome. Now he has lost his freedom. He's chained up in a dungeon. Now he's lost most of his friends. He can't see them. He's lost his travel. He went all over the place, started all these churches. Now he can't go see them. His health is waning. It's hard for him to read. It's hard for him to write. So much that 
could have valued in life is gone. And yet he's saying, but you know what? There's fruit that God wants to do in my life. And as long as I live, I intend to bear that fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, as those characteristics of God grow more and more in my life. The fruit of people, as every opportunity I get, I share with people the gospel. I encourage people who already know Jesus Christ, and there's fruit from it. And I believe that God wants to do that fruit. And that's how Paul lived. And if you know you're not through bearing fruit, you can look forward to life. As soon as you start to give up, and sometimes people have a way of telling us that we're not as valuable if we can't do what we used to do. And so we hang on to our youth, and we hang on to our strength, and we believe that we need to do what we used to do. And so often there are so much more important things that God wants to do. As I was talking to someone today, just one of the most precious saints of God to me, and he was sharing that, you know, boy, he felt really bad that he wasn't able to get out to the work day. And I said, you know, your prayers for our church mean a lot more to me than, than planting grass, as beautiful as that grass is. There's more fruit from what you do than if you had the strength to get out there and do the things that will end up making all of us, like you, unable to do anything physically. Fruit. Let God establish the fruit. We don't decide what's important. We let him decide. And as he is at the center then fruit is going to come. And Paul just said, hey, I like that. Fruit for my labor. He goes on to say that, you know, man, I'm, I'm really torn. A big part of me wants to die. Nevertheless, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. He said, I, I realize that there are people who need me. Now, you may be saying, nobody needs me. I think that's my problem. But if you take yourself out of the center of your life long enough to put Christ there, you'll realize there are a lot of people who need you. There are a lot of opportunities, needs that are going unmet. You might have to work hard at finding some of those needs, but I don't think you'll have to work that hard. We are all needed in this life. There aren't enough people who, who are not self-centered now, there are a lot of people who, when they say, nobody needs me, what they mean is, nobody needs me in the way that I want them to need me and the people that I would want to need me. It doesn't line up my way. They kind of feel like, nobody needs me because George Bush isn't calling. Nobody needs me because they don't want to, you know, put me on TV and make me a star. Nobody needs me because the people that I esteem don't want to be my friend. But when Jesus Christ is your life, then you look for people who have needs. And as such, we're all very important. I have a friend who's really been struggling a lot with depression and, and the feeling of being kind of not needed. But a few months ago, she went down for the first time to visit a, a, uh, or, an orphanage down in Mexico. And I think for the first time in a long time, she got a taste of really being needed. And since then, she's been down a couple more times, and the kids remember her, and they welcome her. And, and now for her, it, she's like a different person. She still has a lot of issues and a lot of problems and difficulties, but all you have to do is bring up the orphanage or ask her to get the pictures out of the kids, and she lights up in discovering what it feels like to be needed. And we're all needed. And Paul realized that. He goes, as long as there's somebody who needs me, I want to be here. That comes when you remove yourself from the center of your life and you put Christ at the center of your life. And you realize, let me look around for someone who needs me. Instead of let me look around and find someone I need. Don't look for what you need. You'll be amazed. When you look for someone who has a need, you'll discover that that's the very need that you had also, the need to be needed. And so Paul says that, you know, I'm probably going to stick around because it's more needful for you. That's, that's what I want to do. You need me, I'll be here. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith 
that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. He says, another reason I love life is I can say certain things and I can do certain things and I see you smile. I see you rejoice. The fact that I can still make you happy by my attitude, Paul says, keeps me going. I'm glad to have the chance to put joy in your life. Sometimes you put joy in people's lives in a way that might hurt you. I, you know, once in a while I'll, you know, hurt myself, tend to be a bit accident prone. I've had this happen a few times over the last few weeks, and it hurts. You know, uh, one week I fell and hit my head and from sitting on a trash can that collapsed, and man, I was dizzy for a couple days. This is like three weeks ago. Then last week, I ate the wrong stuff and got sick to my stomach and was vomiting and, uh, and other things, and it was just, you know, oh, I was miserable, and people laughed. <laughs> they thought me hitting my head was really funny. They think me throwing up was funny, and then over this last week, I had this event we talked about Wednesday night where we were over at the other church moving some stuff, and Steve Bailey and I were going to move this big cabinet, and Steve got one end, and I got the other, and I went to pick it up. It was pretty heavy. I pick it up, and there was a nail sticking out, and it stuck right in my hand, but I'm going, okay, I don't want to jerk away. Steve goes, what? I go, I got a nail, but just keep going. Let's just move it, and let's do it while the nail's in my hand, so we start moving really fast, and something happened, and Steve is near second service, so I can say it. Steve dropped his end, and we were moving... (laughs) We were moving pretty good, and the corner of the cabinet just nailed me as I'm walking. I've got a nail in my hand. Now I've got the sharp edge of the cabinet in a part of me that just wasn't built for lifting cabinets, if you know what I mean. And I'm like, whoa, doubled over. And so then it tipped to one side. One big door flew open, and then Steve grabbed it and moved it the other way, and the door slammed on my hand, busted open a couple of my fingers. And... Uh, to be honest with you, it hurt really bad. I didn't know what to grab, but <laughs> I just started laughing, you know. And then you tell the story, and people think it's hilarious. <laughs> but, but Paul is going, you know what? I can bring joy into your life. And if the thought of me with a concussion and projectile vomiting <laughs> and a board across the groin, a nail in my hand, and two smashed fingers. If that makes you happy, makes me happy. You know, I'll do it again if it makes for good stories. But it's only funny if it's a surprise, and believe me, it'll happen again. It's just the way my life has been. But Paul is saying, you know what, one thing I love about life, I can bring joy to you. By you seeing how I respond to my trials You can learn how you can respond to them too, and and joy can come about. And he said, I'm glad about that. Now, it's really late, but I want to go through those verses again. That's some of the things, those are some of the things that Paul loved about life. Now, let's look through again and see what he loved about death, because loving life is only half of the equation. Loving the idea of death is the other half of the equation. And as Paul talked about them and talked about his deliverance as we as we move on down in verse 20 as he says you know I have this earnest expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed that I'm going to have boldness and that Christ will be magnified in my body whether by life or by death one of the things he loved about life was that Jesus Christ could be magnified in his body but he said if death will allow Jesus Christ to be magnified in my body great If the way I die inspires other people so that they can see Jesus Christ. See, for all of us, what changes our life is seeing Jesus on the cross. Paul said, this is how you know what love is. God showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if if it's time for me to die, and I die in the way that Jesus died, willingly, just accepting it, praising and glorifying God through it. If somebody sees Jesus through that, great. Now, I think of Paul, 
One of his early experiences in life as he was just coming to power as a member of the Sanhedrin, he was in charge of persecuting Christians. And at one point, he got to be the executive who stood there and all of the people who were going to stone Stephen, the first martyr of the church after Jesus, put their coats at Paul's feet, Saul's feet at the time, and he was the guy who was in charge of the whole thing. And he watched as they stoned Stephen to death. A guy like Stephen, who presented that powerful of a message, if you were going to snuff out Christianity, it doesn't get any better than being able to be in charge of stoning a guy like that. But there was something very disturbing about Stephen's death. Because Stephen, as he was about to die, had this peace and this joy, and he looked up, and he said that he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and he prayed for the people who were stoning him and said, God, don't lay this to their charge. That's the kind of thing that leaves an impression on you. If someone died as you were executing them, and they were cursing you, and they were cursing Judaism, and they were cursing God, you'd have a feeling of satisfaction. But seeing that kind of love emanating from one who died, no doubt left an indelible impression on Paul. And imagine later when he had his own encounter with Jesus and, and that light, that presence, that center now changed in his life and for him now to live was Christ. And I'm sure there were many times when he thought back even as many of you think back to when people tried to share the Lord with you and you laughed at them, and you thought they were a joke, and now that they're your brothers and sisters, you think, wow, how could my perspective have so changed? They were so nice. They were so loving. And so for Paul, no doubt, he thought about Stephen, and he realized what I was seeing there was Christ being magnified in death. In fact, the same love that Jesus had as he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do was carried through as Stephen lay there dying, looking up into heaven with a smile on his face. And Paul says, when death comes, I want Christ to be magnified in my death. I want people to see that when I die, I'm doing it right. I'm doing it giving glory to God. I'm not going to be moping and whining and wailing and groaning. I'll be praising God. I'll be magnifying him. And so he said, hey, that's great. But he was still wondering, if I live on in the flesh, fruit. But I don't know what I want to do, really. I can't choose. For, verse 23, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Yet, if I hang around, I know you need me. He realized, for him, death, that's my chance to be with him. The one who is the center of my life. The one who is my everything. For me to live as Christ, death for Paul meant I get to see him again. We don't know if Paul ever saw Jesus while he was alive. We know he saw him when he was on his way to Syria, on the road to Damascus. But Paul was relishing the day when he could be there, be close to him, see him as he is, to express to him those things that he had been thinking all this time as they walked together, as he grew. And so for him, death was, though, hey, life is great, he said, death is better because I'll be with Jesus. I'll be in heaven forever. If you understand that that is our future. And it's really not about, man, I can't wait to get to heaven to see my mansion, to see what kind of car I have up in heaven. I can't wait to see the gold streets. It'll be cool. I wonder if it's really pure gold. I could probably just scratch it and dent it, and that'll be fun. You know, carve my name in the street. That's not what matters. It's, it's Jesus. It's seeing him. It's being with him. That's the big deal. And Paul kept that perspective. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. It's even better. Paul didn't, you know, there are a lot of religious people who make life really miserable 
so that they'll look forward to heaven. And I think that sometimes even subconsciously we can do this. Oh, life stinks, but there's heaven way off there somewhere. I want to be there so bad. Sometimes we're moaning so much about how badly we want to be in heaven. Paul wasn't doing that. Because for him to live as Christ, he's already with him. It's not like, man, I'm just, I hope I can make it over to Jordan. And it, it, No, that wasn't Paul's attitude. He's gone, man, death is going to be awesome. But life is awesome too, as long as God gives it to me. For me to live is Christ. I love this life. I love the chance to represent him. I enjoy being with him. I enjoy all of the blessings that he's brought into my life. But hey, when it's over, I'm ready to go. When he wants to rescue me, I'm ready to go. I don't believe that anyone goes too soon. From our perspective, you know, we, th we think that everyone ought to be able to live to be 100. And, you know, I don't know how many of you, by the time you get to be probably in your 70s, you don't really want to live to 100 at that point. I remember my grandmother at her 100th birthday party, I... They had me, all of our relatives got together and they had me pray for her and I laid hands on her and I said, God, I thank you for these hundred years that you've given grandma and I pray that you'll give her a hundred more. And she goes, oh, David, stop that. I don't want that. <laughs> but it isn't all about life or it isn't all about heaven. It's all about Christ. And we get him now and we'll have him then even better. And I believe whenever God takes someone, one of his children from this world, it's because what's ahead is not as good as what he has for you. I believe that death for all of us will be a rescue operation because God can see the future and know what would happen to us. And he says, I can't let that happen. So often we lose a child and we feel that's the greatest catastrophe but some children have to go through things that are so horrible and so painful that if God knows that and just says, you know what, I'm just going to take you now. Now, I don't understand how it all means. I can't make sense of it all. But just like Job and the song that we sang from Job chapter 1, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I trust him. And when he takes me, it won't be too soon. I don't want it to be too late. Hezekiah heard that he was going to have to die, and he begged for another seven years. And God gave it to him. And it was the most miserable time of his life. During that time, he fathered the most evil king probably in the history of Israel. And his life was miserable. And so, for us, I want to live every second of my life for Jesus Christ. I want to grow closer to him. I want to serve him. I want to enjoy being with his people in fellowship. Hey, I want to live life to its fullest. But when it's time for me to check out, that's graduation. I look forward to that too. And if it's sooner rather than later, don't cry for me. When people who love the Lord cry, when they lose someone, it's because we're bummed for us. It's a very selfish crying. You don't ever cry for someone who knows Jesus who's gone to heaven. That wouldn't make sense. But for each of us, it's not either or. It's not life or death. I love life. I'm scared of death. Or I hate life, so I welcome death. It's both. Because if Jesus Christ is life to you, Jesus is the one who said, if you live and believe in me, you will never die. Do you believe this? Life will go on forever. It'll only get better in every way in heaven. It's better. Sometimes we hear the things that people say about heaven, and they have a way of making it sound so boring that we're sort of like, I don't know if I want to go there. Like, you know, I, I heard someone the other day talking about, you know, that in heaven we will just sing praises to God forever. Now, we will sing praises to God forever, and that sounds kind of exciting, but I have a feeling there's a lot more to it than that. I heard a pastor once who was telling his son about heaven and saying, we'll just sing praises to God forever. And his son goes, that's it? And he goes, well, yeah, we'll, we'll be praising God forever. And his son goes, well, can't we just stop every once in a while and mess around for a while? <laughs> if that's our attitude, 
we don't know God very well. It's going to be everything that we could ever hope for. Heaven is a wonderful place because Jesus is there. As I often tell kids who are concerned or even superstitious adults who are wondering if they're going to see their pets again or can I have a cat while I'm in heaven, and I usually say, you know what? If you get to heaven and you want a cat, you'll have a cat. Because you're going to have everything you want. That's our future. That's what we look forward to. But here's the deal. Heaven is all around us. Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven being among us. We don't look for the beauty of this life. And so heaven's going to look completely strange to us. I believe that if we live this life with our eyes wide open, with Jesus Christ at the center of our life, we will see blessings and fruit and beauty and glory in this life. And when we get to heaven, we're going to go, this seems vaguely familiar. All of the best things in life are here magnified gloriously. And there's a connection. And then if we have any regrets, it's going to be, I should have enjoyed life more. I should have appreciated it down there more. I had no idea how much heaven was all around me in the touch of a person who I love or in the opportunity to see someone's eyes light up when I share the gospel with them and they're like, wow, eternal life comes on them at that moment. Why? Why did I waste so much of my time? Why did I not enjoy it more? Paul is an example of someone who can be in prison and write a book about rejoicing because he learned to put Jesus in the center of his life. And as a result, he was a guy who loved life but he was a guy who also loved death. When it came finally, as he was most likely, according to Eusebius, beheaded there in Rome, I believe his head was cut off with a smile on his face. I think of Peter, who had been so humiliated before as he denied Christ, and he too, supposedly, according to church history, crucified. He was so afraid of being identified with Jesus that he lied to a little girl. And then you see this boldness that came upon him on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And he changed so much that at his death when they said, okay, you were connected to the guy on the cross. Now, we're going to nail you to a cross too. And he said, hey, fine with me. But he said, hang me upside down because I don't deserve to be killed exactly the way my Lord did. That's a guy who knows how to go out. Hey, spin me upside down. I don't care. I'm not going to cry about it. I'm not going to moan and groan about it. And for us, it's amazing how much joy we can find in life when we conquer our fear of death. And it's going to be amazing how wonderful death is when we know that we've lived our lives fully for what matters. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for this amazing example of Paul. As we see his example, God, exactly what he wanted has happened. You are magnified as we look at Paul's life and his death. And Lord, we desire to plug into that same power of the Holy Spirit that will allow us to live life to its fullest so that people will see us and know we love life. And at the same time, to know that we're ready to die, we're not afraid of that either. Because for us, Lord, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Make that the reality in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.